Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Lou, welcome to the War Room. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Okay, so I'm always curious about people's careers, what got them on the track. You are a reporter, investigative journalist, author, obviously, of the new book. Um, What kind of got you interested in searching for things? Yeah, so I work in Minnesota and Minneapolis at the NBC affiliate, which is referred to as CARE 11, K-A-R-E. I grew up in western Minnesota in a very small town, and in high school, the main thing, uh, you know, we had a, a teacher who had a really good game to get kids interested in current events. It was like a Jeopardy style game called Current Events Challenge. So basically, I and many of my friends and classmates read the newspaper every single day in high school, which I would think would be pretty rare, especially today. So that got me interested in current events. And then also just I've always been uh, a writer, uh, you know, a creative writer throughout school. And when you reach that point where you try to figure out what you're good at and how to make money doing it, becoming a reporter seemed like a good fit. So I went to college for journalism at the University of Minnesota, got my first job in Sioux Falls, South Dakota at KELO TV, which they call Kelloland in the area there. And I was assigned as the cops and courts reporter. And that's really where the interest into cold cases, criminal and court cases that's where all that came from because it was my job every single day to to be digging into that stuff. Okay. And so cold case, I mean, obviously we've all heard the term, but generally how many years does it take for a crime to become a cold case? I guess it really depends. But so just to take you back in time, so this is 2005 when I got this job. That was around the time when police departments around the country were really ramping up and creating cold case units because DNA technology had advanced so much in a short amount of time. The OJ Simpson trial in 1995, 1996 used DNA evidence. And that was really where the public for the very first time learned a lot about it. 10 years after that, all of a sudden they were discovering like, well, we've had this case on the shelf for 20 years, 30 years, but we might be able to extract some DNA and, and be able to prove who committed the crime. So in general, there's a lot of cases that I would say about 20 years would be kind of like uh, your stereotypical cold case where, you know, maybe the people that they initially interviewed in the initial investigation, maybe their relationships have changed mm. and they might be able to share information that they weren't willing to share before. And to add to that, the technology component that I spoke of with DNA. Yeah. We had on, Oh gosh, 20 episodes ago, um, talking about the Texas Rangers and this, in this, this crime. Oh, I think it was like 1860s or something like that. And, and, and the author was talking about, um, you know, kind of how they went through and the investigative process and a little bit about how they collected evidence. That's pretty far removed. The 1970s, okay, I was born in 85, so it's before my time. But it, so it's it's kind of far removed. Of course, we all know people alive in the 70s. But I'm guessing from a policing standpoint, though, you mentioned DNA, so there's that big 
that big change. But what else changed in the 70s from where we're sitting at today as far as interview techniques? Have you looked into that? Because I imagine that would be part of the puzzle when they go back to solve these cold cases is, did they have best practices that were really efficient back then? Well, to get into that, maybe we should dive into the book a little bit because it goes over some of what were thought to be best practices, but really were not. And so in in my story, Vanished in Vermilion, it centers on the disappearance of Pam Jackson and Sherry Miller, who were teenagers in 1971. Mm -hmm. Uh, The initial investigation back then was essentially nothing other than the police telling the parents to stop worrying that they would come home because they probably just ran away. And the, another problem from the 1970s was that law enforcement was so tribal, like the sheriff's department in this small county didn't cooperate a lot with the police department in the biggest city in that county. So it's it's almost unfathomable today. But the, this tribalism was really a problem in law enforcement, you know, stretching all the way to the near past. It's It's a lot better now, but even a few years ago, it was a major problem where a sheriff could be territorial and uh, there wasn't as much communication between agencies and and cooperation. Yeah, it's, it's um, okay. Yeah. So let's maybe set the table for the book and we'll kind of get in there a little bit. So 1971, um, the, in, in, okay. Obviously again, I'm from the South. So South Dakota to me is a foreign place that I've seen on maps, maybe set the table a, l- a little bit about, this area of South Dakota, what it looked like, um, you know, demographics, population density, stuff like that, of course, at, at a high level, of course. Sure. So South Dakota is a small state population wise. Uh, two biggest cities are Sioux Falls and Rapid City uh, on the far Rapid City is on the western side of the state. Sioux Falls is practically on the eastern border of the state. And in between is just mostly small farm or ranch communities, uh, depending on what part of the state you're in. So Vermilion, South Dakota is right by the Missouri River, which is which is huge. Missouri River and Mississippi River, you know, th- those are huge where they go through our, our country. And the Missouri River, you know, kind of cuts the, the geography. There's river valleys and uh, bluffs and so forth through the area there. Um, but it's mostly a farm community. And then the University of South Dakota is also based in Vermilion, South Dakota, where this story takes place. So it's a little bit different than the rest of the state, which is it's a very conservative state. But the university being based in Vermilion kind of makes it kind of a, a liberal pocket in the state of South Dakota. But also, you know, uh, a lot of um, generational divides, you know, between uh like students from that generation, 1971. So, you know, to put it in context, 1972 is when the voting age was lowered to 18. There were lots of anti-war protests at the time. There were actually lots of hippie communes in the area, which people who live in South Dakota now find that hard to believe that in their area, there were hippie communes in the early 70s. But that kind of gives you a basic idea of, of what the area is like. It's very small and very rural. Okay, and and so the police, the police, the sheriff or police or whichever version it was there, um, probably not a lot of homicides, if I have to guess. Or kidnappings. No, in fact, not, not even not even one a year, you know. So, and and when they do happen, it's you know it's a very big deal. It's uh, you know, a case that they talk about for years. 
So the, really, you know, mostly what they would deal with would be tragic accidents, you know, a car accident, as far as talking about fatalities, um, stuff like that, drunk driving, drugs, uh, but really not a whole lot of violence beyond domestic violence, which, of course, is serious in itself, but sure. really very little, very little stranger violence, if you will. Okay, so paint kind of the, the with that being said, the high-level picture for um, Pam and Sherry's disappearance. So Pam and Sherry, it's Pam Jackson and Sherry Miller. They're high school juniors at the end of their junior year in Vermilion, South Dakota. There's a, a big end-of-the-year party planned by the seniors. And Pam and Sherry are not the kind of girls that go to parties. Uh, they're they're not they're not unpopular, but they're not part of the popular group, if you will. And they just don't go to those weekend parties. But it's the end of the year, and it's Memorial Day weekend. Happens to be the first weekend that the United States designated Memorial Day as uh, the last Monday of the month of May. Uh, they're pretty much done with school. They do have some tests that are taking place the next week, but the seniors are done, and and it's you know basically celebrating the end of the school year it's summertime it's a drinking party with a keg beer out at a gravel pit and so in the midwest uh where there are gravel pits where they you know scoop and dig into the ground to try to mine gravel and in sand mm -hmm. uh those are party spots that kids in rural areas go to because it provides a lot of cover from the main roads they can have a bonfire down in there and throw a, a keg party and not have traffic driving by noticing it uh, or, or other adults or their parents knowing what's going on. So it was a very common thing back then. I grew up in western Minnesota in the 90s. I was a teenager in the 90s. It was very common when I was in high school where I grew up. So I I, I understand how that is. But in, here's the, the main problem. And as it relates to this story, those areas are very hard to find, even for the people that are trying to get there, not just for the adults that could catch them in the act. So Pam and Sherry trying to find this party, they can't find it. They are driving around asking people for directions. And then they're finally, they run into some of their classmates, some boys from their class uh, out in the country. They're not too far away. And those boys are surprised to see them on their way to a, a party, but say, you know what, just follow us. We, we'll, we'll get you there. Well, on the drive between the spot they met the boys and the spot where the party was just a few miles, the boys get lost on their way there. By the time they figure out where they're going and pulling to the party, they realize Pam and Sherry are no longer behind them and Pam and Sherry are never seen again. Wow. Yeah. And so you have a, a remote location, 1971 in a rural state, in a rural area no cell phones, no GPS. It's trying to recreate this scene. Sometimes is a little hard for modern, uh, a modern mind because you're like, man, well, you know, how did you, how could they have such a hard trouble? But yeah. So, so they get lost and getting lost back then. It's, I guess it just, it, it doesn't have the same feel as getting lost today because I suspect at least back then, 71 rural area, hard to find getting lost was a little bit more common. Yes. And here's how I usually explain it to people being, you know, a teen of the nineties where mm -hmm. when I grew up, we didn't have cell phones in high school, but by sure. the time I graduated college, everyone did. Well, your, your night would consist of starting at home, calling your friends and trying to line up who you're going to hang out with from your landlines, calling their parents' houses and getting them on the phone, 
some of your best friends you might not reach and then you're not going to hang out with them that night unless you happen to run into each other. Mm-hmm. So the next stage of your night consists of cruising around the town, it basically like the movie Dazed and Confused, trying to pull people over, flag them down, and then people hop into cars with each other, leave their cars, you know, at the local gas station uh, until the night is over. People end up to, with people that they didn't start out their night with. And, that, and that's just how it was. That was normal. There's no GPS. There's no texting. You know, you, you, there was a lot more left to chance and also a lot more to your parents not knowing where you are. And so a lot mm-hmm. more trust needed between teen and parent about, you know, I might not know where you're going to end up tonight, but you need to be safe and you need to make it back here by your curfew. You know, that's kind of how it was. Yeah. And, and so I guess the, the thing there is, is it wouldn't be uncommon at one of these parties for someone to get lost, not show up. And then you can't do anything, right? You could kind of send out a makeshift search party, but who knows where you're going, what you're looking for. So them not arriving, I'm guessing didn't raise a lot of flags. No, it didn't at all. And the, the boys, they did wonder. They did they did stop for a moment and say, hey, what happened to them? But then when they don't see the headlights coming, then they they figure, well, I guess they changed their mind, you know, because we were getting lost. I'm sure it was frustrating. Um, you know, they probably maybe they're on the fence about going to a drinking party in the first place because this is not their crowd. So mm-hmm. the boys, the boys basically shrugged. They probably didn't tell anyone at the party that Pam and Sherry were trying to follow them. They probably didn't give it a second thought. So when do people realize something's amiss. Well, Pam's mom uh, had a system set up where she would leave the kitchen light on. So when Pam got home, she'd turn off the kitchen light and go to bed. And then if the mom got worried, she'd just look down the hallway, see the light is off and then have peace of mind. Well, she woke up in the middle of the night and noticed that that light was still on. So she started to get worried, woke up her husband, you know, and he tells her, you know, uh, you know, let's not worry. Let's go back to bed. Well, by the next morning, the the simple fact that Pam did not come home that night, those parents were, they already knew something was wrong. And so then, then shift over to Sherry's family. Sherry's came from a different background, which was, uh, you know, back then what they would call a broken home. Her parents were not together. Her father was uh, very abusive when he was in the picture. Uh, Sherry actually wasn't even living with her mom at the time. She was living with her grandparents because her mother's household was so unstable and she needed some stability. And so uh, Pam's mother eventually gets Sherry's grandfather on the phone and finds out that Sherry didn't come home either because they were kind of hoping maybe that Pam crashed it with Sherry that night. And so when they realize that neither girl came home, that's when they go to the sheriff's office on Sunday afternoon, you know, the night after they disappeared or that, sorry, the afternoon after the night they disappeared. Mm. So, yeah. And again, just kind of trying to think through this. Now you're in, you're now you're looking for them. They get lost in a remote area. Um, not really sure where they got lost at, but did, you got these boys who kind of the last want to see them kind of recreating the last steps. I'm again, just thinking through this must've been a, a pain for a rule kind of um, area. Well, I can tell you how hard it was for me uh, in writing the book, trying to reach all these people, as well as, you know, talking about memories that are 30, 40 years old. Uh, at the time, though, the, the, the sheriff did not immediately go and try to find the last people who talked to him. The sheriff did not do anything at first. It wasn't until days later when the family keeps coming back and saying, you know, and then they talk to a deputy and saying, we're here, you know, about uh, the missing girls. And then the deputy says, what missing girls? The sheriff didn't even share it with his staff. You know, mm-hmm. the report that was just made, it was so 
frustratingly poor, that initial investigation. Well, once the sheriff finally does start looking into it later that week, he does eventually talk to at least one or two of the boys that had seen them last. But then the sheriff didn't share with the public in the way that they would today what the girls' last steps were. So the public did not know that they were seen just off of this highway, right by this old rural church, just a few miles from this party they were trying to reach. The public had no idea. So Pam's father, he was driving, you know, all the country roads, looking in in ditches and driving all over the place, trying to find them in all the wrong spots because the dad didn't even know where they were trying to get. Mm. And so you said early on that the the sheriff, I think, um, said, "Hey, they probably just ran away or something, or something to that effect." So there there wasn't, at least the you know usually in a in a murder or presumed murder, it's the people closest to you that are presumed to be the killers. Were, was there any suspicion at some point that the family's involved? No, the, see, this was not a presumed murder in 1971, and that's part of the problem. So they, the, it was a missing persons case treated as a runaway. And so, and part of that is from Sherry's background. She was from the stereotypical situation in their mind of a teen who would run away. Like mm-hmm. she would want to get away. She, in fact, was living with her grandparents. She probably hated Vermilion and wanted to get somewhere else where life was more exciting or, or whatever. So it was 100% treated as a missing person slash runaway case. The best work that they did at the time was they... They filed a delinquent juvenile uh, warrant so that if they were found in a different state or something, they could be the girls could be arrested and then sent back to South Dakota as juvenile delinquents. And they also put out a kind of like a a stolen car uh, note so that if the car somebody came across this old 1960 Studebaker that they're driving, that it would get flagged as, hey, you know, that that's a stolen vehicle. We can pull it over and we can stop them. But 1971 comes and goes, you know, 1972 in the spring, all of a sudden her, their classmates are graduating and they're starting to think, wow, Pam and Sherry never came back. Like, you know, maybe something worse happened. We don't know. We don't know what happened. And the sheriff essentially just stopped trying and the families were just left to wonder what had happened. And they were desperate. They were sending letters to hippie communes in Canada trying to to see if anybody has spotted them. They were following up on National Enquirer articles that uh, that remains were found of a 17-year-old girl. And, you know, they, they were basically trying everything they could. But when back then, again, sign of the times, you don't have the internet, you don't have social media, you, you can't really rally people to help you in the same way that you might be able today. Um, so they, they were basically stuck. And it wasn't until a couple more decades passed before this case started to get movement again. So they go missing, their friends graduate. Everyone has a theory, I guess. They ran away, they disappeared, something bad happened, hippie communes. What did it do to the families that were left behind? They were devastated in, in different ways. So for Pam's family, she was the youngest sibling by far, like her two brothers and sister were already graduated and, and out of the house and married and had their own families. And so, you know, Pam was the, uh, the, the, the caboose at the end of the train and she was the baby of the family. And, and so her parents were 
forced to just move on with that hole in their heart, you know, wondering what happened to her. Over on Sherry's side of the family, it just caused more turbulence than an already turbulent family. Her younger sister was only eight years old at the time, and, and her life was never the same, you know, growing up in an unstable environment with this mystery involving what happened to her, her older sister, who was basically a mom figure to her. So it was something that just, uh, as you can imagine, never stopped affecting them. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't. And it's, you know, I'm thinking about something like the John Bonet Ramsey case, which, you know, was really large when I was a kid. Um, and I mean, I guess I never have solved that. You just kind of think about how it always pops up in the news. And and that's that's from someone living in the South. I can't imagine living close to that case or, or something like this that, um, doesn't have maybe the national spotlight, but it's it's always there. You can't you can't escape it. In the desire, the human desire to want to know what happens or what happened. You know, we hate movies that leave you with a cliffhanger, and this is a real life tragedy that you can't you can't will it into existence. You can't ask the author, and so um, I, I can yeah I I, I, can, I can see how it could be devastating. And the more devastating thing here, it seems to be, is that there's no one to suspect, right? So it's not as if you, at least early on, it's not as if you can think, well, we think he did it. We just can't prove it. You're completely in the dark here. Yeah. And again, there was no strong feeling that they were murdered. And, and let's yeah, fast yeah, forward. Yeah, that's, let's fast sorry. forward. Yeah, yeah, let's that's fa- what I mean. When I, when I say suspect, I mean, it's not like you can think, oh, we think Bob did this or you have nothing. You're you're grasping at straws. There's there's no yeah, strong belief. Is all I'm saying. Yeah. They they had nothing. They had absolutely nothing. So if you fast forward 20 years to about the 20th anniversary, there was a young reporter at the local newspaper who uh, happened to just hear something about it, and he decided, well, I I didn't. I'm about the same age as what these girls would be if they were alive today, and uh, and it's such a mystery. I'm going to write a, a story about it. And this was the very first time that their story of the missing girls got told basically in its entirety for the time. And we're talking 1990, 1991. Um, So that story gets told and that rekindles the interest in a way that it went from being like, Oh, the sad thing that we just don't know what happened to like, maybe we should try to figure out what happened. It kind of, it inspired people to start trying to solve it. And this is 20 years after the fact. And, um, Coinciding with that was a local man who would have been about the same age as Pam and Sherry had just been convicted of rape. And at his sentencing hearing, the prosecutor brought in all uh, 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 several other women that he had been involved with in the past who told very similar, very frightening stories of his behavior toward them. And so they essentially he was convicted just of the one rape, but they basically had him pegged as what they thought was a serial rapist. And the details that came out in that court hearing were just chilling. And so all of a sudden they start thinking about, okay, this guy would have been about the same age as Pam and Sherry. And then they look at geography. He grew up on a farm that was just a few miles away from this party that they were trying to reach. He would have been 16, almost 17 at the time. What if those girls accidentally drove onto his property what if he had something to do with their disappearance and that's where this changed from just a missing person suspected runaway case to a suspected homicide now did did he ever admit to it or is this just people connecting dots this is just connecting dots the the lead the lead investigator that solved his rape case you know started 
the wheels rolling in mm-hmm. looking into him in the Pam and Sherry case. But there's really not much more they can do. He goes to prison. He got an extraordinary long sentence for the rape case, 225 years. So he's sent off to the South Dakota State Penitentiary. Nothing more really gets done until about 10 years later in 2004. That's when the state of South Dakota gets a small grant and starts a cold case unit. And they essentially look around and say, well, what should we start working on? And they pick two cases, this being one of them, to start looking into as officially as a cold case investigation into the disappearance of Pam Jackson and Sherry Miller, this time with the theory that they were murdered with the the, the one and only suspect being a man named David Licken. Mm. And so it's been 30 years, roughly. Who's alive from the original story uh, as far as parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters? Both, both of Pam's parents are still alive and and they they would live well into their 90s. Uh, Sherry's mother had died. Uh, but she still had her sibling, uh, to, and actually her older brother had died as well. So uh, Sherry had a uh, a living sibling and other family members that were, you know, kind of advocating on, on her behalf. Pam had her parents, and they all still lived in the area. So they were obviously disturbed to learn that their family members may have been killed and possibly raped first. But on the other hand, they were optimistic that they would finally get answers through the course of this investigation. And the first step after uh, putting together a search warrant affidavit was to search the farm that David Licken grew up on. His brother, Kerwin, who's around the same age, and elderly mother, Esther Licken, still lived on that farm. And, and ran, they had cattle and crops, and they, they ran this, this farm. They had, they had been there the whole time. And so the theory that police had is that this 1960 Studebaker had been buried somewhere on that farm by David and with the help of his family members in 1971. Well, did they have heavy equipment? That's a that's a tall order. They they brought in ground penetrating radar. They brought in, uh, uh, yeah, heavy, heavy equipment. No, no, no. Uh, I'm saying in 71, did they have that kind of equipment? Oh, yeah, yeah. They, they sure did. Yeah, okay. they, they, they did. They, they, and they would put up their own barns, their own chicken coops. Uh, they, they would move dirt around on the farm. They would uh, dig uh, like a burn pit, you know, because the, the trash man doesn't come out in the country. They burn their mm-hmm. own trash there. So they, they did have the equipment that could make that happen. I think one of the fatal flaws early in this investigation that I found through my research and in, in writing the book is that they acknowledged to themselves that a 16 year old couldn't have done this. So they were trying to find excuses that the rest of the family was in on it as well in order to make the theory work. And that was just the very beginning of a, of an investigation that went completely off the rails. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It's, it speaks to, you're, I just want to pause on the book for half a second. You as a, a crime reporter, investigative reporter, we kind of hear the talk about, you know, most people are murdered by people they know. But it kind of speaks to this this idea of how hard it might be to solve crimes when it's not, you know, the relative or the boyfriend or, or whatever. Um, it, I've kind of heard that talk before, but it, it seems, is this kind of case obviously has some unique factors with being rural and whatnot, but um, is this kind of normal for these, uh, I don't call them random stories of death, but however you want to phrase that where, where it's not, it's not, it's not clear that the family, the family's involved. And so 
trying to get outside and trying to determine what happened, uh, why someone went missing, seems to be a tall order for us in general. Is that, is, or, or is this one just kind of a unique case because it just worked out that way? Well, let me tell you, I've covered a lot of cases that have been solved with tremendous police work. A lot of times when it is a close family member who does it, they can put it together with circumstantial evidence. And it's you know, it's just as convincing as physical evidence. For example, let's say a husband hates his wife. Uh, let's say that they find uh, evidence that he was having an affair. And then let's say that his phone was turned off between this hour and this hour when the woman was murdered. And, you know, they can put together a number of circumstances where a jury can say, well, no, duh, there's no other person that this could have been. He's the only one that had the motive, who had the opportunity, and he's the one that did it. When it's a stranger that commits the crime, they can't piece it together with circumstance. They need some sort of physical link. Uh which is where DNA comes into play usually, you know, in a, in a lot of uh, like a cold case, especially, um, or video video that, you know, they can, they can try to trade. Well, who, who is that person that's caught on video here committing the crime or right in the area of the crime, you know, like they, they can, they can, they, they need that good link to try to lead them to the stranger that committed the crime. Now, in this case, they're, they're trying to put together a very complicated cold case with no physical evidence. They don't have Pam and Sherry's bodies. They don't have the car. They're looking for that link. And it's confirmation bias where they've already decided that it's probably David looking that do it that did it. Now we just need to find the evidence and prove it. And so all they have is that his proximity to the where they disappeared is is close enough. Um, he's done other bad things in his life. So he, you know, maybe has it in him to to do the crime. And then they're, they're just trying to go from there. They, they think if we go dig up this farm with a search warrant, we'll find the evidence to be able to charge them. So in other words, you can say kind of paint that scenario of the husband, cell phone turned off, this, that, and the other. In these scenarios, they try to think about how that might work and then try to find the physical link. So he had heavy equipment to dig. He was a rapist. He was out there. He was this. And so, that would also apply to a lot of people, but he kind of fits the mold in this case. And so they're, they're trying to use the same methodology um, when they come across someone, uh, but then they need that physical DNA or whatever it is to, to kind of actually connect the person to the crime. And in this case, obviously they, they don't find it with this guy. They search that farm. They dig up the farm twice. And then they do a, a third search of the houses again that are on the farmstead. And they find they don't find any evidence that links him to it. They find things that when you look through the lens of already thinking that he's guilty, that they find suspicious. Right. Like, for example, in a in a little like a little playhouse on the farm there, they find a red purse in the rafters and they're like, oh, my God, is this a trophy? They want to believe that it's a trophy. Well, the family, uh, Kerwin Lick and the brother that lives there tells him, no, that's that's a toy that mm -hmm. our our nieces and nephews and kids play with when they play in the playhouse. It belonged to my older sister when she was a teenager in the sixties or whatever. It's innocuous. It's nothing, but there's two things going on here. There's the police convincing themselves. And then there's the police convincing the public. They file a search warrant receipt that says everything that they found. And it says on that receipt, red purse. It doesn't give any other context. If you're a member of the public following the story through the newspapers and TV reports, 
you're going to think, oh my God, they, it sounds like they have Pam or Sherry's right. purse. Right. And then they put up, they put on their bones. Oh my God, they found bones. They're going to test those and they're going to find out they belong to Pam and Sherry. Well, no, the, the investigators already knew that they were chicken bones, but they collected them <laughs> and, you know, did the testing, you know, just as a, as a matter of being thorough, I suppose. But on that receipt, it says bones. And what else are you going to think if you're following this case? Okay. So you, again, let's step outside this case, you as an investigative reporter, journalist, when I hear that, I go, man, this is the worst. <laughs> That's so sorry. So dirty. Because if it's not the person, you you can't undo that. If it is the person, putting it where the public can find out didn't gain you any favors, right? Because the testing's going to come back. If it's bones, human bones, okay, you're going to arrest him on that basis. So to me, it, it's help me understand why they might do that. Give, give me the paint me the best picture why in a police department might do that because it's hard for me to go. Yeah. You're acting in good faith at this point. Because I think that they thought they were still going to find the smoking gun and they just needed to maintain support from the public and the belief in that what they're doing is right. And so they maintain that level of suspicion while still having some plausible deniability where they say, Hey, we're not, nobody's been charged here. We're just trying to find the girls. But then mm-hmm. they put out into the public realm that, well, we found clothing, a red purse, bones, uh, miscellaneous audio auto parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> OK, yeah. I mean, like then it sounds like, well, geez, sure sounds like these guys are on the right track. You know, uh, bravo. Keep up the good work. Yeah. OK, so I'm not going to spool the end of the book. The readers can go check that out. But help me understand what are was there anything um that you think that someone could have done to have solved this prior to when it was solved. Yeah. And so without giving the ultimate spoiler, because trust me, everybody that's read this book that doesn't know how it ends and hasn't, you know, tried to Google the spoilers or anything like that is just their mind is blown by the twists and turns. So I, I want to give the sure. the highest, highest suggestion to read it without spoilers, but without giving you spoilers, uh, I can tell you that if that initial sheriff had taken it seriously, he could have solved he could have solved this case. Mm. Now that be that being said, um, now here's where it gets sticky and and morally icky. It might never have been solved if not for this entire misguided cold case investigation. In a roundabout way, in a roundabout way, you will find out what happened to Pam and Sherry. It may never have happened if not for the attention that this misguided cold case investigation brought to this case. So I think the the story though, is all about the process and all about learning for yourself and seeing for yourself how so many things can go wrong, even if there are good intentions and reading about this stuff and hearing about it is the only way to prevent the same thing from happening again to somebody else. And that that family uh, on that farm, they had their reputations absolutely destroyed by this. Right. Okay. And so you with a distinguished career covering these cases, you know, when other police officers, cops, whatever you come across, read this 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 story or similar stories, is do you find this to be a pattern where with police work where they have a set of tools. They know how to use them. But when you get outside of that, it, it really becomes this dangerous game of um, the ends justify the means type, type mentality. Or are these just kind of these extreme cases that we 
see with books and, and popular TV or whatever it might be. Well, I think that that hits the nail on the head. It's like there were too many people that thought that the ends justify the means. But what they need to take a step back and remember is that the means are just as important as important as the end, because uh, there's innocent people that are affected in the wake. Okay, and you have to remember everybody has to remember that we're human and humans make mistakes and human assumptions can be wrong. Part of the problem is that some of the best detectives uh, are successful because their gut is right so much and following their gut and the evidence allows them to to be a cut above everybody else. And so the the challenge is, is being able to recognize when your gut is wrong and being able to change course. And some people just don't have it in them to change course. That's what you see in this book. That's what happens in other cases where uh, a lot of times where things go horribly wrong, even if the intentions were not bad at the beginning. Yeah. It's it's interesting to see where stuff like this goes 10, 20 years. We had on um, a professor the other day talking about AI and its ability to take and just read and, or listen, however you want to phrase it, mundane stuff. So uh, tweets, blog posts, conversations, podcasts, interviews, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so you think about a modern day homicide investigation, um, you know, you could see in 10, 15 years where they could deploy a bot to go and to listen to a public information, of course, but public information from thousands of nearby citizens that might produce clues that were never before available because police can't go read all of the various things from all the various posts that are out there. And there's going to be someone who's going to tweet about something about that they didn't realize was related to a murder case that will probably help uh, spur things on. And so you can kind of see on one end it going that way and, and some of the dangers with that. And then on the other end where we're at today is kind of this, uh, we have the tools, but we also have our gut. And so <laughs> I'm not sure which one I like better, but I could see it heading that way at some point as well. Yeah. I mean, you see it in everything like in sports analytics are, you know, the, the new thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's, there'd be a coach who could say, you know, if I, go for it on fourth down 75% of the time, I'll be successful 50% of the time rather than punting the ball away. And so then they, they do that. But I think we all realize that there has to be a balance between uh, following your gut and following the analytics. And when you extrapolate that to investigating criminal cases, there's just, there's too much at stake if you get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, I, in part of the book, as you'll see, it's what I try to do is, you know, even after investigators have been proven wrong, I, I want I, I ask them to reflect on, on how they got it wrong and how they made these mistakes and what they believe now. And it's really frustrating when you read the conversations that I had, how many of them just they just say, I'm not going to look at any of the new evidence because what we were hearing at the time seems so right. And I'm just going to continue to believe that. Yeah. And and I guess, you know, that's maybe easier for some people to live with what happened or live with mistakes they've made if they just refuse to acknowledge that they weren't right. It's frustrating yeah. for a reader, though, and it, and it really puts into context. I, I think people should really evaluate what they think criminal justice looks like and and what is right and what is wrong and what is too much. Yeah, it's interesting because. I remember watching, um, well, I guess this is, you know, you know near your neck of the woods, obviously, uh, the George Floyd trial. Uh, but you take modern trials. Um, what's the, There was another one, um, like the Amber Geiger, or some of these, you'll see these sensationalized trials that kind of take the nation's news and it'll be on TV. 
Um, and you, you can kind of watch it. And as you watch it, you realize just how little you know about court procedures, right? Because there's mm-hmm. objections yeah. and you're like, you're like, what? wait, I can kind of understand some objections, but it sounded like he should have objected to this based upon something before, but he didn't. And so I don't know. And, and uh, oh, the, the Rittenhouse one, that's what I was about. So you kind of watch these trials and you realize, um, okay, hmm. You know, during the Rittenhouse trial, the defense accused the prosecution of trying to violate uh, Kyle's uh, Rittenhouse's Fifth Amendment rights, which I have no idea legally if that's true or not. I was like, hmm. And it got me thinking, if the defense was right, just to play this out, how often do prosecutors in court cases do such tactics and sometimes get away with it or on the same side for the defense? But the ability for people to actually watch and to monitor and to see this in practice is just not there. And so when you think about whether it's courts or police work or criminal justice as a whole, when you pull that lid back and you start to look, you're going to have dummies like me who just have questions because we don't understand it. Um, But those questions will probably eventually, as it's worked out, will lead to a refined process. Um, Because to your point about the investigators not wanting to – you know, real look at the evidence or whatever it might be. There's part of it that's sympathetic, but there's also part of it that goes, well, okay, I understand what you're saying. You you saw this plus this plus this, but over here, help me understand why you didn't look at this at the time. And sometimes when those questions are asked, it seems that there's not really good answers. And that's how we improve best practices is by going back and doing those lessons, lesson learned sessions, it seems. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think everybody could agree that the goal should be justice. The goal should not be winning. And it's it's too yeah. often that the goal is winning. You know, if we make an arrest, then we did our jobs. Not, you know, if we look into this thoroughly and there's not enough evidence to arrest anyone, that's not seen as a positive in police work. In mm-hmm. the, the bigger scheme of things, though, that probably is a positive because then you're not railroading someone. It, it's, you know, that it's a different way we as human beings want to win that's natural it's mm-hmm. it's hard it's hard to accept a draw for example yeah oh yeah it is okay the book as we are recording it is not officially out on amazon but by the time this podcast releases uh it will be out and so amazon we'll link to it there anywhere else you want to point we got your website twitter anywhere else you want us to point people to uh, you know, Amazon and barnesandnoble.com are probably, you know, the most common places to buy it. And so you can find it there. I've created a website, vanishingvermilion.com, where you can get more information on it and, you know, kind of uh, extras, photographs and videos that uh, that obviously are not included with the book. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Lou Raguse, my name, L-O-U-R-A-G-U-S-E. And I cover a number of high-profile criminal cases so it's it's if you're into true crime criminal justice stuff like that it's uh we can continue the dialogue more i think that anyone who is a fan of uh or interested in the true crime genre will especially like this book and the one thing that i can say is that you've never read anything like it the most common comment that i've heard from people that were able to read the uh pre-release is that how in the world did i not hear about this case Mm -hmm. mm-hmm mm-hmm Okay, I did say, I think, last question, but one more. My Timberwolves, how are they going to finish the season? Do you know? 
Uh, the expectations were so high at the beginning of the year. Um, it, it started off so poorly. It's leveling out. I, I, they make the playoffs and let's see if, if Ant can uh, just be the man in the playoffs and, and at least, uh, you know, win a series. Yeah. They, you know, so my, the Celtics are my favorite team and the Timberwolves are my second. Uh, if you could probably figure out the connection of how that happened, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, they, they did have high expectations, but they're actually, if you look at it, they're only, I don't know what it is today, but three games out of like third place is they're not, they're really not as bad as right. it felt early on in the season. So, but it all goes back to the Gobert trade and, you know, whether it was worth it or not. And uh, second guessing Minnesotans always second guess trades ever since the Herschel Walker trade for the Vikings back in 1991. Um, but uh, yeah, so I interned for the Timberwolves when Kevin Garnett was in his prime oh, wow. uh, in, in the early 2000s. So yeah, that's, it's, it, the fans are are due. They're due for a win. You know, yeah, they're 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 tired. They're tired of getting the high draft picks and hoping for a miracle. They they want a good team to put together a, a good finish. So we're all hopeful. Yeah. Well, hopefully this year will be. Listen, it's with KD and Kyrie coming to the West. It's it's going to be hard. I'm not going to pretend like it's not. But but playoff lines up right. They might make a little run here. So we'll see. So anyways, mm-hmm. thank you so much for your time. We'll link to all of this in the show notes all right thanks so much ryan appreciate the conversation thanks for listening today really really appreciate it if you could drop a five-star review wherever you may be we keep getting on great guests and that's because you keep supporting that show if you want to know more go to warroommedia.com ever wonder if the deep state murdered president kennedy if hillary clinton is kidnapping babies If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship, or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile. Hi, my name is Michel-Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca or anywhere you download your favorite podcast. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.